Um, we are having a special Christmas service today and a special Advent message today. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> and I have to say that I, I want to give glory to God because as a pastor, I do Christmas, a deep dive into Christmas um, every year. And um, every year... God puts something new and beautiful on my heart. I've been doing this for a really long time, actually. I know I look surprisingly young. But um, I've been doing this for a long time, and Christmas is part of the whole thing, and it's a joy, and it's an honor. But if you, you know, if those of you that study the Bible, if you ever think to yourself, man, how much more could I get out of this? Well, let me just say, so much more. So much more. So this is, what we're going to talk about today is something that God has put on my heart this year about Christmas, and it's really special, and it's really beautiful, and I am very blessed to be able to share it with you, too. So, this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Let me pray first, and then we'll jump into it. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your birth for me, and for my friends, and for the world. As I was sitting, listening to that beautiful music, oh, holy night, when Christ was born, I was thinking that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that night. That I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have given my life to you if it wasn't for that story that gripped me so many years ago. Because the reality is, Jesus, you remember I was lost. And I was without hope and I, there's just no way I could have gotten myself out of the mess that I was in. I remember the story that struck down in my world like a lightning bolt that God had come for me. That He loved me, would rather die than live without me. And to realize that it's a true story, it's, that love actually, that, that kind of love actually exists, and without it, nothing would exist. Man, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what we celebrate today in this season. I pray that today you would impress upon us even more, God, what it means. We humble ourselves before you. That's the first thing, Lord. I put away my pretension. I put away my pride or thinking that I've somehow attained some level on my own. Lord, I, I am here to receive. That's my posture. And Lord, like you, I'm here to give. I'm blessed so that I can bless. And I pray that, I pray that my friends here, those that I know, those that I haven't met, I pray that they would know they're here for a reason, that you brought them here today. I pray that you'd speak. Help me get out of your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, 
and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz of Rahab, by Rahab, and Boaz, uh, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I know what you're thinking. This is a genealogy, and this is one of the more boring things in the Bible. <clears throat> so, I, I, well, I'll start my sermon with a confession. Um, my biblical palate has significantly expanded over the years. Um, the older I've gotten, the more I've come, to, I, I've come to actually enjoy a good old genealogy in the Bible. And I remember when I was younger, I used to hate these things. Um, do you remember when your mom used to serve you up a plate of Brussels sprouts, force those suckers down your throat, and you used to, and you know, your mom would say something even prophetic. She'd say, you know, someday you might come to like those, and you, you know, you, with all the steely will in your mind, you're like, mm-mm, I'll never like this. This is torture. And then later, I have not confessed this to my mom, but I have to say to you guys, I actually love Brussels sprouts now. And other things too, other things that I swore I would never like. My taste buds have actually changed. Well, <laughs> taste buds evolve, and at least for me, so has my love for certain flavors of Bible passages. Passages like this that used to be flat or bland, hard to chew my way through, and now I'm finding them absolutely delightful. So for Christmas, I have served up a good old genealogy for you. But let me show you let me hopefully show you why this is so beautiful. Um, the first secret to getting to know more about ancient genealogies is to understand what they are and to understand what they're not. So many times, the reason I found them bland and not great was because I thought they were something that they weren't meant to be. Ancient Middle Eastern genealogies are not like modern family trees. They're not like that. They actually trace the male line and they would include or exclude people, and sometimes entire generations, all depending on what the author of that genealogy wanted to emphasize. They were handcrafted, so to speak. So in this way, each genealogy is telling a story in its own right, in a sense. It's telling a story about, about someone that they're about to introduce, but through the stories of other people. It's really uh, difficult for us to enjoy a genealogy in our culture because we live in what's called an individualistic culture. We don't see a connection between ourselves and others around us typically in our culture, at least not to the significant level that they do in most other cultures of our world today and most ancient cultures. Most ancient cultures today um, are what's called a collective culture. And that means what I do, it means that the individual is not as important as the tribe, or is not as important as the family, is not as important as the nation or as the group in which it serves. So in a collective culture, if you were growing up in a collective culture, which you're not, and let's say you wanted to be a singer, and you came to your parents and said, hey, mom, dad, I've decided to be a singer. In a collective culture, they would say, well, great, but no, you're not. We're manjays, we're electricians, and so you're gonna be an electrician. That's what you're gonna do. So in a collective culture, you have to take what's on the outside and conform your insides to that. 
You're going to be a soldier. You're going to be an electrician. You're going to be this or that. And we have to bend what's on the inside of us to what's going on, to what we're told, the role we're told to play on the outside. In an individualistic culture, it's completely different, completely opposite in that way. Um, In an individualistic culture, the individual members are more important than the group itself. So I take who I am and I bring it to the outside and the outside has got to recognize, affirm, and conform to what I say that I am or who I say that I am. That's the culture that we live in. And as such, there is a complete disconnect to the way that I live and how it affects other people. Um, The cardinal sin in our culture today is do whatever you want until it affects others. And there's an illusory premonition behind that that says it's possible to do private things without it affecting other people. The Bible, that is a completely alien concept to the Bible. The Bible would say like here in this genealogy, someone is here because of the stories of a string of other people, of generations. And that person has been affected by, forged in the stories of these other people and the events and the choices that these other people have made. So uh, genealogies are very important because they're an introduction to the character, the kind of person, the pedigree, the credentials that this person is going to be. Now Matthew's famous genealogy of Jesus, we have some, of course, some heavy hitters. If you're familiar with the Bible, you recognize some of these names. You've got guys like David, the, you know, the, in a Jewish mind, the ideal king, the warrior poet himself, David, this mighty warrior king. Um, you've got Abraham, the father of faith, the father of, the, of Judaism. You've got Isaac, the son of promise. You've got Jacob, out of which came the 12 tribes. And by naming these names, Matthew is saying that these great men, the greats, the greatest arguably, some of the greatest men in Jewish history, these great men are part of Jesus' Jewish messianic credentials. He's saying to his, Jude- his Jewish audience, this is the Messiah and here's why. Look where he came from. Look at the men, the stories that preceded him. <clears throat> in this, Matthew was clearly telling people Uh, especially Jewish people, this is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus is the one that fulfills all of Israel's loose ends. The Old Testament, if you just ended it with the Old Testament, and they were aware of this, it was a dismal end. It's not like the Old Testament like slowly builds and then climaxes in Jesus. Actually, the Old Testament gives these promises and then it fails. It's like there's this drop-off. There's this anticlimactic ending to the Old Testament and then there's like 400 years of silence and darkness and oppression and tyranny from other nations and it's just this horrendous mess. And by the time we show up to the first century, Jews are saying, have we been cast off forever? Maybe we blew it. We're, we're home in our land, but we're not really home because someone else is ruling over us. We've been exiled from God's presence. We're in some serious trouble. And Matthew shows up and says, actually, here's the one we've been waiting for that, that's gonna propel the redemptive story forward and actually fulfill it in its fullest, in its fullest most deepest meanings. But, blah, 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 blah. I wanna focus on something else. He includes other names in the list that tell a different kind of story. We've got guys like David, Abraham, uh, Jacob, these big, big names, but he also includes other names in the list that tell 
that balance this out. And in particular, this genealogy, which would have been very surprising in the ancient world, includes the names of four women. Four women, and that alone, that alone, without their stories involved here, that alone in the ancient patriarchal society that it was would have been a shock to have in a genealogy. But more than that, the specific women that Matthew includes in Jesus' ancestry highlight parts of Israel's story that would have been uncomfortable, that would have been messy, that would have been not ideal, the kinds of stories of your past that you don't want people to know about, the kinds of stories that are hard to explain, that are not so neat and, you know, in their perfect little boxes and their explanations and all of these other things. This is the, the messy stuff that Matthew grafts into the ancestry of Jesus, Christmas. Each of these women's stories are difficult and uncomfortable, and by highlighting them, Matthew is intentionally putting in messy lives into the Christmas story. And this, I, and I love this. I love this so much. This is the kind of stuff that gripped my heart about Christianity because it's so beautifully gritty and messy. When we think about Christmas, even today, these four gritty lives are not what we would associate with Christmas. We're gonna hone in on these four women's stories today because of, precisely because of how awkward they are. We think of lights and warmth and good people, and celebration, and celebrating life together. But that's not the way the Bible presents the coming, the coming of Jesus. It's way too clean here in the West. The Bible's, you're gonna get dirt under your nails if you dig into the real story of Christmas. Let me show you. Matthew names Tamar, first of all, a widow who seduced her father-in-law in order to seek justice. We're getting a little dirty. Next, there's Rahab, a Canaanite sex worker, a prostitute, who helped the Israelites take and defeat Jericho. Then he names Ruth, a Moabite widow, who chose her mother-in-law and Israel's God over her own people. And finally, Matthew mentions Bathsheba, a widow whose husband was murdered so that the king, King David, could have her as his own wife. Merry Christmas. I love it. Now, we're gonna take each story in turn this morning, and in so doing, we're gonna learn just who Christmas was intended for. Christmas for who? This gift that God wrapped up in flesh and swaddling clothes and gave to the earth. Who's it intended for? Who's it for? Well, by looking at these stories, we're gonna see at least four things. We're gonna see that Christmas was for people who are vulnerable and abandoned. It's awesome. Secondly, Christmas is for the dirtiest and the most sinful. Thirdly, Christmas is for the impoverished without any hope of getting out of, getting, having success in their own strength. And finally, Christmas is for victims and abusers alike. 
That's what we're going to learn today. Let's start with Tamar. Um, I'm going to read you. I have it on the screen. Um, I put this on there. This is from Genesis, her story. I just put a little excerpt there for you. Her story is from Genesis 38, one of the most awkward chapters in the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. It's debatable. But about three months later, this is verse 24, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, listen to this, Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result... She's now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and let's burn her to death. Wow. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. Said, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And she, uh, she said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And Judah recognized them as his own, by the way, and said, she is more righteous than me. Since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. So here's, here's our scene. Here's, our, our, here's our, one of our Christmas stories today. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law, and after the death of her first husband, as was the custom, she was married to her husband's brother. That was the custom in the ancient Near East. When a woman died, it was common to require one of the dead husband's brothers to marry his widow so that she wouldn't be destitute, she wouldn't be alone, she would have money, she'd have protection, and any children that she would have from her um, deceased husband's brother would have his name. So his family name would not die, would not die with him. That was the custom. So Tamar's first husband died which is, um, you can read it yourself, it's a messy business in and of itself, but then so did her next husband. Her next husband died as well. And Judah avoids giving her to his third son. Again, that would have been the custom and that would have been the proper thing to do to make sure she was cared for and protected in that world. But Judah avoids giving her to the third son, instead sends her back to her own family, penniless and completely abandoned. Widowed women were particularly vulnerable in, the ancient, in ancient patriarchal societies. Um, so the loss of her husband, it would have meant the loss of her home. It would have meant the loss of provision. It would have meant extreme vulnerability because it would have meant the loss of her safety. And it would have meant that she had no family. This... In short, what Judah did to Tamar would have ruined her. You need to understand that. That's the scene. She is so desperate. She's been abandoned. She's vulnerable. Later, God under Moses would make this a law in Israel that widows should be married to their brother-in-laws for their protection. And like I said, so that their children would be born um, into their father's inheritance and into his name. That's Deuteronomy 25 if you want to read about it. Judah utterly abandons Tamar without hope for a stable future. He won't take responsibility for, for her. So this is what happens. Determined to seek justice, Tamar audaciously, I'll give you that, disguises herself as a prostitute, wears a veil in those days. Prostitutes wore veils. And Judah sleeps with her. And he has no idea that he's having sex with his own daughter-in-law. That's what's going on here. And as payment, he promises that he'll send her a young goat from his flock as collateral, but he doesn't have it 
he doesn't have it uh, with him, so she says, well, cunningly, she says, give me your seal. That's like your signet ring. Your it was actually a cord with a seal on it. So back in those days, a robe meant authority. You had, a, uh, you had it wrapped with a cord that had its own custom embroidery um, for your family, a weave. And when you gave your word or some kind of a legal action, they would take uh, one slab of clay and lay your cord over that slab of clay and they would take another slab of clay and they would press it in there and that was your signature. It meant that you, you gave your word. It was held up in that society. So she says, give me your cord um, and give me your staff and give me your signature. And he does it. Even though Judah would not take responsibility for Tamar's life, when it was discovered that she was pregnant through prostitution, did you see how quick he was to judge her? In fact, not just judge her, what did he say? Let's burn her. Let's set her on fire. This is, this is Judah. You know, you may have heard the term about Jesus of the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is it. So she sends this, this stuff back. She sends his stuff and she says, yeah, you're right, I am pregnant and whoever owns this stuff, that's the father. Do you recognize them? And he, you know, you can, you know, if it's a soap opera, dun, 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 you know, the, the close up on his face, he's busted. Tamar had little power in a world like that. So in desperation, she took drastic measures to secure her future. Now here's what's interesting about the story to me. Although in our world, Tamar's actions are reprehensible, are they not? And yet in her own culture, and indeed this Bible, this biblical story, Judah is the one that's worthy of the rebuke. Judah, by his own admission, she is more righteous than I. He says this blinding flash of the obvious statement. By his own admission, he's the villain of the story, not Tamar after what she did. In fact, she's the courageous one. Although, like I said, sinful and audacious, sure, I'll give you that, but yet courageous. She's the heroine of the story. And so What's interesting in this genealogy, this is why I find them so great, especially this one. By naming Tamar in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew, what is he doing? He's welcoming the abandoned, the vulnerable, into the Christmas story. He's welcoming the powerless, those that have been cast off and mistreated, into the Christmas story. Many who fit Tamar's description in our own day, think of them. In your mind, fill your mind now with someone who fits this description, someone who's been cast off, someone who's been found out, someone who's been scarlet-lettered, someone who's been lied to and betrayed. Many who fit Tamar's description in our day, um, Homeless, uh, drive down Aurora, prostitutes that you'll see driving on, on Aurora uh, Avenue in Seattle, or someone who had some kind of a moral failure, you know, the truth is they've come to where they are because of desperate circumstances, I promise you. I promise. Like Tamar, this does not excuse our choices, it doesn't excuse their choices, but Jesus sees it all. 
He sees it. And you know what? He even understands it. Jesus cares. And Jesus came for them. Christmas are for the undesirables, those we'd rather sweep under the rug and not think about, those we'd like to get out of our society so it looks cleaner and it's more comfortable. God says, Merry Christmas. I'm coming for a very complicated type of person with a story who's desperate, who's driven to do desperate things. This is who Christmas is for. Maybe you've done some things you're not proud of because you found yourself maybe in a desperate situation. Most things that we do are not just done in a vacuum. You know that. Most of the time uh, when we hurt people, it's because we ourselves have been hurt. That's the reality. Again, doesn't excuse us. It just is what it is. We live in a world of a ripple effect of abuse and pain and vulnerability and desperation causes for desperate things. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've done some things that you're not proud of because you found yourself in desperate circumstances. Merry Christmas. Jesus came for you. He understands you. He gets you. He sees it all. And he loves you. Selah. May shame leave right now because of that. You're not too far away. This is the God who's come to you. Okay, number two, Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute from Jericho who chose to protect Israel's spies as they prepared to attack her own city. <laughs> Let me read it to you. This is Joshua chapter two, um, eight through 13. Do I have it up there? Yes, I do. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that, a, and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us so that all who live in this country are melting with fear because of you. She's telling the 12 spies that are come to scout things out, the Israelite spies, she's telling them this. Verse 10, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to uh, Sihon of Og and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, how you, you completely destroyed them. When we heard of this, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sister, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Rahab, first of all, is a Gentile by birth, a prostitute by profession, and is probably the last person the Israelites would have expected to help them to ally them in overthrowing her own people. In fact, God had made it clear that he was going to use the nation of Israel to bring his judgment on Canaanite culture precisely because of their, one of the reasons, precisely because of their taboo sexual immorality. Their sexual practices in the culture were so outlandish and so crazy that God was gonna use Israel as his 
instrument of judgment to rid the culture and rid the land of them that it wouldn't keep infecting other people and other generations. This is the story. Their mission was to bring salvation to the land through judgment. Do you know that that's a major theme in the Bible? That God brings, he, it's called, theologians call it the great reversal. That God will turn judgment and bring it into salvation. He'll desolate a place to make it Eden again. That's what the Israelites are to do. They're to go in to the new promised land and they're to destroy and bring God's wrath and judgment, not on everybody, but on certain cultures there that are incredibly corrupt. The rest, according to Deuteronomy, they're to live in peace with. So if anybody tells you, Judges is a, a tough one for us to read. And if anybody tells you that you know, it's imperialistic or God just sent people in there to kill people and get their land, that's not the story. It's not the story. These are, again, specific cultures that are spreading their evil to everyone else. So, here's what's ironic. This woman who helps Israel is also herself caught up in the wicked sexual culture that Israel is there to punish. Think of that. This woman is steeped in this culture herself. Now, did you notice, here's what's crazy about it. Some things should, should jump out at you. For, for example, what smacked me around was her profession of faith. Look at verse 11. It says, she says, when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Listen to her profession. For the Lord, the word is Yahweh, could not, there's only, um, in other words, in the, in the Hebrew language, in the Bible, there are many Elohim, that means gods. There are many Elohim, but only one of those Elohim is Yahweh. There's only one Yahweh. This is it. She says, your God is God in heaven above and earth below. A Gentile prostitute knows about Yahweh before any Israelites have even stepped foot in her city yet. It's fascinating to me. On this, Kenneth Bailey notes that somehow, he says, she, quote, discovered that the God of the Israelites was the one true God and decided to serve him alone. And that discovery, he, he goes on to say, led her to put her life on the line on the basis of her new faith, that she acted against her, even her own community, even against her own gods and its leaders because of this faith whether Rahab learned about Israel through gossip or prophetic revelation, I don't really even know. Either way, she knew about God before any Israelites show up. And through her faith, Jericho was defeated and she was spared and she became a part of God's family. She's a, you could say, she's a first fruit of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, where he says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. She's like the first fruit of this fulfillment coming true. Through Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Rahab's inclusion into the family line of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, verse five, is Matthew's way of reminding us that Christmas is for everyone and anyone even the most undeserving and even the most deserving of God's judgment, anyone who has faith in the God of heaven and the God of earth, anyone, even a foreign sex worker, 
She's invited into the family. See, Jesus, by the way, Jesus, the Greek name for Joshua, he came to earth at Christmas for the same purpose that Joshua and Israel came to Canaan. He came to bring salvation through judgment. Did you know that? Jesus was born to rid the world of evil and to bring salvation through judgment, except unlike Joshua, Jesus climbed on a cross, let his enemies nail him to it, and took the judgment and wrath of God instead of the people. So that we, Rahabs, we sinners, can be saved and can be welcomed into God's family. When you drive down Aurora and you see those girls by Lowe's or wherever they are, think of Rahab. Those are women... Let's admit it, those women are the farthest thing we think of when we think of Christmas and Christianity, are they not? We think of someone that is just beyond hope, beyond anyone ever saving, beyond anyone getting to. It's easy to think that way, except for the Christmas story in Matthew's genealogy. Through this genealogy, Matthew puts a Canaanite sex worker into the heart of the Christmas story as if to say, those women are exactly who Christmas is for. And Christmas is the only power, actually, that can save them at all. The power of Christmas. Selah. Merry Christmas. Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite widow who left her own land to follow her widowed Jewish mother-in-law back to Israel. It's an incredible story. She had no family. She had no protection or provision. And these two women took incredibly great risks just to survive. I don't know if they even hoped for a future. It was just survival. Ruth had nothing. And even the food that she gathered was dependent on the kindness of Israel's welfare system. Again, there are baked in laws that when they would harvest a field, they were by law to, leave, to not go through a second time and pick up what they missed, to leave it for those who were poor and impoverished to go and have provision for themselves, to gather as much as they wanted. That was what her survival depended on. Yet in her grief and poverty, Ruth chose to put her trust in her mother-in-law, Naomi, and in Naomi's God. And when her mother-in-law told Ruth to risk everything to appeal to a man named Boaz, this distant relative that she really didn't know hardly at all, Ruth displayed her trust in Naomi through some risky obedience. She was told, go down to the threshing floor. It's harvest time. They're celebrating. Boaz will celebrate until he falls asleep from it. That's how great this party is gonna be. Go and uncover his feet. Let the cold wake him up and just lay there. And when he wakes up, just do whatever he says. I mean, can you imagine that advice? There's this guy, super rich and famous. Here's how I want you to go down there and uncover his feet when he's sleeping. I mean... Is that going to be on a dating app or on like a, some advice of how to catch your, your next one? Absolutely not. 
and yet she does it. Through his, and through, and Boaz wakes up, he's so generous through his redemptive generosity, this Gentile woman went from the grip of poverty to an inheritance of riches and to be embraced into this family and into this culture. And the child that would be born through Ruth's Ruth's trust and Boaz's mercy became the grandfather of King David and the ancestor of Jesus. She's put into his family line. Ruth didn't have a prayer of surviving or thriving in Israel um, as a foreigner, especially, and especially as a Moabite. They were hated. Her survival depended on daily handouts. But God provided for her, and he rewarded her obedience. Jesus is the Boaz who has come to the world to be generous and even to marry impoverished humanity. Christmas promises an inheritance of riches to those married to Jesus. We are heirs to the kingdom of riches through Christ. By the way, many news outlets and many financial experts are predicting uh, or say there may be like a global recession in 2023. We, we might experience that hardship like we, like we haven't before. That's very possible. How have people gotten through, especially Christian people, gotten through intense, crushing poverty throughout history, Christians have gripped onto Christmas. No matter what happens in this life, whether I succeed or not, I've got riches waiting for me because of my husband, because of the guy I'm married to, Jesus Christ, the God of the universe. I'll be okay. In fact, not only am I impo- I'm impoverished, but I'm also rich. I've got a richness of character, a strength, a buoyancy in the storms of life. I can be a person of greatness, even when it doesn't make sense, when I don't have much to offer. I can still give of quality and give of my life and be a generous person, even when I don't have much to really give, monetarily speaking. How is that possible? Christmas. Ruth being put in there because she's attached to the riches of someone else. Christmas promises his riches, riches to the poor. Jesus said in his famous manifesto, his Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit. In other words, as a character trait. Blessed are you. Why? Because you're, you're rich. God bends to those. He's rich in heart. And finally, Bathsheba the wife of Uriah, she has a painful and a tragic, tragic story. This is 2 Samuel 11. I think I put it up there. Um, let's go verses, yeah, verse two, yeah. One evening, David got up. You guys know the story. It's a famous one. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then, finding out that she was taken, that she wasn't available, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And she had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then, she went back home. 
the woman conceived and sent word to David, said word to David saying, I am pregnant. Some have, okay, some have suggested, I've heard it said, that Bathsheba purposefully seduced David. But listen, the Bible does not pin those kinds of motives on her. Just read the text. It doesn't say that. In fact, though the Bible is silent on Bathsheba's thoughts, it's very vocal about David's choices. It's very vocal about his intent. You can read about that in 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven, twelve one 1 through 10. The Bible puts the blame squarely on David. David broke, in fact, three of God's commandments in, in, uh, in his interactions with Bathsheba. In other words, the Bible lays the blame squarely on the one who had all the power. Who was that? That was David. What power did Bathsheba have to refuse a king in a society like that? Instead of loving his neighbor, David selfishly took what he wanted and had his neighbor killed so he could have it. In my mind, Bathsheba is a victim of abuse of power and sexual abuse. Clearly, David used his authority to overpower her sensibilities and perhaps even force unwanted sexual desire onto her. Regardless, though, regardless of whether what happened with David was consensual or not, I really, Bathsheba, you just have to appreciate her position. She found herself in an incredibly vulnerable position, pregnant by a man who was not her husband. Think of that. by the most powerful man in the land. How stuck did she feel? How powerless was she in that moment? I mean, what could she have done? She must have felt so utterly stuck with no way out, and yet God used this seemingly hopeless situation to bring about the savior of the world. Think of her, she didn't know that. She's thinking, this, there's no way out. I'm just waiting for the world to find out about this, and it's, it's over. What am I going to do? And then to find out that he had her husband killed, and yet God uses this. Christmas is for those who find themselves in insoluble situations. Maybe that's you. Maybe there's something that is in your mind this morning that you're thinking, I just don't see a way. I just don't see a way. I'm just biding my time. I'm just waiting for the, for the, um, what my wife and I say to each other, just waiting for the fit to hit the sham. <laughs> just waiting for it to happen. Just waiting for this to crumble. There's no way out. I'm, I'm, you know, checkmate in four. I know it's coming. There's no way out of this. And yet God used this gritty, hopeless Situation where there seemed to be no way out, this oppressive situation to bring about the Savior of the world. Christmas is for those who find themselves in insoluble situations. Um, by the way, the WHO, I just, as I was researching for this sermon, estimates that about one in three women worldwide have experienced either physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. One in three worldwide. Merry Christmas. Jesus sees. He sees. And he has a way where there is no way. He can bring redemption even in those situations. He can use it for his glory 
to wipe every tear from our eye. But Christmas is also for the abuser, in this case, King David. David makes a bad situation worse by using his power, his God-given anointed power, to murder Bathsheba's husband and taking taking his wife as his own. And yet, when God confronts David, he immediately and profoundly regrets what he's done and repents before God. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I think in Hebrew it was two words, his confession. It wasn't this elaborate, then I did this, and then I did this, and it wasn't this elaborate thing. It was, yeah, I've sinned before God. It was a quality of confession. And you remember the prophet said, and God has put away your sin. Christmas is for the abused and the abusers. By including David and Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew is underlying that God can even use the outcome of abuse in his redemptive plan. And that there's forgiveness and redemption for everyone in God's salvation plan. It definitely may not erase those consequences. Certainly didn't for David. His life was never the same after that horrible mistake it was miserable after that but he could go through the misery knowing that God had forgiven him eternally what does all this mean for us Christmas for who well Christmas for the real humanity the messy situations the situations where there doesn't seem to be a way out the ones that we don't have answers for, the ones that are self-inflicted, the ones that we're caught up in, that we didn't ask for, all of it. That is life, and that's the Bible, and that's Christmas. It's for the homeless man that's just trying to get on his feet and get a job that's sleeping on the other side of those walls. It's for the prostitutes stuck in slavery in the middle of Seattle. It's for the Johns that pick them up. How? How? Salvation through judgment. Jesus was judged. Jesus was victimized. Jesus was abused. And Jesus was punished as an, as an abuser. To wash us, to wash humanity clean. How does Christmas change the way we look at the world around us? This is my final point. Number one, no one is beyond God's reach. Christians that understand Christmas see hope everywhere. On the one hand, we don't have our heads buried in the sand. We don't just slap on a smile and ignore what's going on in the world. No, we see the grit. We see the mess. We acknowledge it. In fact, we even engage in it because that's what God did for us. Christmas is about God leaving heaven and coming into the mess. Christians, when you leave, when you leave, that's what you're doing. You're going out into Seattle, back to where you came from, into your context, in a messy, gritty, vulnerable, abusive, hurtful world. And you're going in 
Roll up your sleeves. Because you don't just see the mess, you see hope. You see redemption. You know love will win. We're buoyant. It makes us tough. Christmas gives us a mental toughness you won't find in any other religion or philosophy. We see beauty and brokenness everywhere. The world is both beautiful and broken. Your job is both beautiful and broken. Where you live is both beautiful and broken. Your marriage is both beautiful and broken. Christians see that. And we have hope that gets us through. Merry Christmas, that's what it's for. That's how we look at the world. And no one is beyond the reach of God. We see a homeless person and we think, I'm gonna give because God so loved the world that he gave. So I'm gonna give. We see an abused person, someone who is trapped in a horrible system. We pray for them. We know there's hope. There is hope. Okay, secondly, we also understand that everyone has a story. Gosh. If you would have just met Tamar or Rahab or Ruth or Bathsheba without knowing their story, what what would you think? How would you have first met Tamar, perhaps? Maybe with the report. Did you hear Judah's daughter-in-law? She became a and she's she's pregnant from prostitution. What would you have thought? How would you first have met Rahab? Maybe seen her on the street passing by lewdly offering herself up, what would you have thought? Oh, gosh. This place is, our world is so messed up. Wring our hands of the culture. Shrug. Man, Jesus, come back. This place is so jacked up. And then dismiss, walk away. Is that what we have done? What about Bathsheba? Do you hear she seduced the king? Do you hear that? She lured him in, made that great man fall. But then you hear their stories and you realize it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Thank God for the Bible. The Bible prepares us for what we see out there. The Bible attacks our our prejudices, our assumptions, how we fill in vacuums with our own judgments. The Bible comes right against that. Christmas comes right against that because God chose to put these women in his story. It's baked into who we are as Christians. Everyone has a story and it's complicated. Everyone. And I want to learn it. I want to listen. I want to ask questions. Thirdly, and though that story doesn't exclude us and others of our sinful choices, God sees and understands the nuances of every circumstance and story and offers redemption and forgiveness to even the messiest of situations. And finally, God is still incarnating himself into this messy world through our messy lives. Be willing to bet you're a pretty messy person yourself. You could bet the farm that I'm a pretty messy guy. 
And yet, God wants to somehow, in his great reversal, in his way of doing things, he uses my limp, he uses my scars, he uses my humanity as the vehicle by which he will touch and keep redeeming this world. You are God's Christmas gift to Seattle or to wherever you're coming from. Even in your mess, even in your unresolve, even in the tension and the things that are still not worked out right, God wants to use that because that's the nature, that's his nature, that's the nature of his grace. See, some of us would think, well, once I get this part figured out, then I can be used of God. Oh, God will blow your mind away. He'll say, actually, I can use that wound to bring about healing that you never would have dreamed possible. There's one more woman that I did not mention. I feel like I can't leave her out. It was Mary. The 14-year-old mother of Jesus. An angel comes to her and says, hey, here's the plan that I have for your life, according to God. You're 14, but I'm going to overshadow you and you're going to conceive and the one that you've conceived is the Holy One. He's going to save the world. But I'm going to do this before you're married. In fact, I have to do this before you're married. It's essential that I do this before you've been sexual with anyone else. I need, I need to do this. And it's going to ruin your reputation. It's going to ruin your life. You're going to be misunderstood for the rest of your life. 14 years old. 14. And what does she say? Think of this. A 14-year-old girl who's seeing the cost before her. Chris Ludio wrote, read part of it. It's the Magnificat. Look at this 14-year-old girl's act of faith. This is Luke 1. I should have written it down or uh, pasted it in, but I didn't. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in, in God my, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Even though I will be misunderstood and I'm gonna lose it all, because I'm gonna say yes to this, all generations from this point on will call me blessed. What foresight. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. We're talking about she's giving thanks for her affliction. She's giving thanks for a social death sentence. What are you going through? Can you give thanks in the middle of that? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word. 
let it be. Her obedience. (sighs) No matter how hard it is, God has a plan for all of us to incarnate Christ. We are, she was the vessel of Jesus. We are also, we're the vessels of the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. God lives in us. Maybe it will hurt your reputation. Certainly there will be sacrifice. Certainly you will suffer. Certainly you won't be liked. Certainly you will not, you're not gonna win a culture war. Certainly you're gonna be rejected. Certainly. Can we join with this fifth incredible matriarch and say, let it be. All that you have spoken, let it be for you. Because you've done great things for me. How can I not give my life back to you? What is that? Christmas. Merry Christmas.